COVID Calls, a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. My idea for COVID Calls is captured in the name. Whenever a disaster strikes, I have a habit of calling around. I call doctors and health experts, philosophers and other social science researchers like me, city planners and architects, emergency managers, and elected officials. Sometimes I call journalists, teachers, and artists. This time, with this disaster, it seemed like if I was going to make my calls, I may as well see if anyone else was interested to listen in. So, welcome, and thank you for joining me. Let's try to increase our knowledge and our solidarity in the face of this disaster together. You can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time on YouTube Live. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can hear COVID Calls recorded as podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and other places where you listen to podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for guests and topics and please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. On the day I started COVID Calls, March 16, 2020, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center, there were globally 181,328 cases of COVID-19 around the world, and there were 7,180 deaths. At that time, there were 88 deaths in the United States. As of the 50th episode of COVID Calls, one we recorded on May 22, 2020, there were 5,169,907 confirmed COVID-19 cases globally, and the death toll had risen to 339,423. 95,533 of those deaths at that point were in the United States. Starting with the May 4 program, I have read a life story or obituary as a way to humanize these unimaginable numbers. From immigrant meatpacking workers to jazz musicians, star high school students to Polish World War II pilots, we've learned about the lives and untimely deaths of far too many people. I invite anyone who wishes to share a life story with COVID Calls listeners to please be in touch with me. When the first deaths were counted in the United States, and very early in COVID calls, I asked my colleague, disaster researcher Kim Fortune, what she was most worried about with COVID-19. Her answer? I woke up this morning worried that we were going to have a nuclear disaster in South Texas. That's a disaster expert for you, always thinking about worst cases. But Kim wasn't wrong. A disaster is not a single event. It is a process, and it can cascade and collide with other processes. Think about the triple disaster of the 311 earthquake, tsunami, and nuclear power plant disaster at Fukushima. We have got to think about COVID-19 as a cascade. We are in the midst of the biggest global economic crisis since 2008. And in those early days of February and March, we were so busy worried about buying pasta and beans without dying that we couldn't see it straight. Pretty soon, the schools of the entire nation were placed under emergency closure for months, still ongoing. Then we thought maybe it was just for a while. Closures now that we see could go all of 2020 and beyond until we have a vaccine. 
And then? What sort of a disaster is that? A disruption of learning and socialization that kids will talk about for the rest of their lives. And guess what? Hurricane season is still coming and wildfire season too, and disaster-stricken communities from Puerto Rico to Fukushima Prefecture are still recovering. Despite what some elected officials might have you believe, disasters are long. They intertwine. We live in them almost all the time, now it seems. In the United States, we've had no clear plans for what to do about COVID-19, and we have no plans times 10 for COVID-19 as part of a cascading disaster, like the economic crisis, plus our normal seasonal mayhem. It's been one constant improvisation. But why? Why couldn't we prepare adequately? How many more people will die unnecessarily this year because they need the health care that will instead go to COVID-19? This disaster has revealed every fracture in American life, from a failed and unfair health system to our failure to care for elders and children to the racial fault lines that emerged with the murders of Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd. The United States is convulsing in a way we haven't seen since 1968, and maybe even worse than that fateful year. One of the challenges we have is simply in the way that we talk about disasters. We usually describe them as events, they happen to us. We recover from them. But I think it's much more the case, and we are seeing this here with COVID-19, that a disaster is usually a great number of interconnecting processes. They don't come to us from the outside, but they reveal the society we have. And we don't recover in some absolute way. The disaster becomes part of us, the fabric of our lives, in our memories, our psychology, our laws, and our science. I'm also interested in talking about how we can possibly capture everything we need to know about this disaster. Newsrooms are maxed out, and that's just keeping up with the day-to-day. -day. The disaster research community is maxed out too, and confined. Everyone is working from home. Every state and territory and Native American government and every major city across America is fully activated in emergency management, plus every hospital plus the disaster planners for every major and probably even smaller companies. We have an enormous amount of information, much of it excruciatingly valuable, being generated every single day as this unfolds. Usually, this is called lessons learned. But how can we learn it in the midst of a disaster? Let's try. This disease demands that we constantly keep an eye on global trends, places where the curve is flattening and places where it isn't. But in less statistical ways, too, there's been an international discourse, one measured out in comparing trust or lack of trust in government, in dread and grief, in ways of coping and in finding support. Disaster research has historically been conducted within the confines of the nation state. And yet, if this pandemic teaches us nothing, it's that those old modes are now defunct. We need global methods of research, global teams of experts, and also globally forged communities of empathy if we're going to bend the curves towards survivability. With that in mind, I have COVID calls discussions that include guests from around the world, Chile to Singapore to South Korea to Italy to Germany and more. These discussions play one small part in collecting and passing along good solid information and in documenting this moment for history. There can be no doubt we're living in momentous times. I have been asked frequently in these last months, as I know my historian colleagues have been asked, what does history teach us that prepares us for COVID-19? 
It's a question we simultaneously crave because, well, people remember we exist, but we dread it in another way, and here's why. Think of the challenge we all face in getting the story of this pandemic, the one we're living through. I quote the numbers, but behind each number is a person, a life, and there's a story behind the numbers, the lives of those who collect them and make them available, complexities upon complexities, stories upon stories. Yes, the story of Donald Trump or Dr. Anthony Fauci will appear in the history books of the future, but tracing out those millions of other stories, that's going to take dedication and creativity. Now map that back in time with no social media, no 24-hour news, scanty government reporting, imperfect archives, and lots of gaps. So you can see why historians thrill at the chance to explain the past, then blanch a bit when we realize that we can rarely, if ever, deliver concrete lessons. And even if we did, people will receive those lessons differently depending on their place in this world. But we do it because we love it, and because we believe that those historical gaps, those missing or muted voices, they deserve to be heard. And hearing them, even if they're faint, may very well make our lives better, or so we hope. I brought historians on COVID calls and will continue to do so to commiserate with me on the role of the historian in the pandemic and to enlighten us from their own research in the history of disaster. In COVID calls, we also think about how memory works. Let me tell you what I mean. In the South Korean city of Ansan, is one of the most extraordinary sites of disaster memory in the world. I was taken there by my friend and colleague, Professor Cheung Jong, and that's where we met Mrs. Pooja Chung. She was one of the parents of a child who died in the 2014 Sewol Ferry disaster in South Korea, a disaster that killed 294 people, mostly teens, on their way to a school trip at Jeju Island. The students left the classroom and they never returned. But the classroom remained and became a beautiful testament to the lives that were so painfully cut short. What is now called the memory classroom, they literally took the contents of many classrooms, moved everything to a building in the center of town, every chair, every blackboard, every locker, preserved as they were. The parents and friends have left notes and the favorite foods of the students. Mrs. Chung pointed out to me a seat cushion she had made. Many parents had made these cushions because she noticed later how hard the chairs were a testament to a parent's caring and grief that goes on even after death. Yes, it's a sad place. What's sadder than an empty classroom? But it's also a place full of stories and photos and life, and it exists. While victims' families wait for a formal memorial, something perhaps architecturally grand and ceremonially to, ceremonial to be built, the memory classroom and Puja Chung have been on my mind these past months as we consider the lives lost in this collective disaster, the COVID-19 pandemic. Will a memorial ever be built? Where should it be? What design should be adopted? Or will it be smaller in scale, more distributed? Maybe the memory classroom of COVID-19 is the emergency department of hospitals around the world. To think this through, I talk frequently with artists, public health and medical experts, psychologists and historians who are aware of the ways that memory shapes reality and this future, as well as the past. On one of the days, and now I can't even recall which it was, the difference in the United States death totals from the day before to that day was 1,846. That number stood out to me. I knew that number, and I looked it up, and there it was. 
the recorded number of deaths in Hurricane Katrina, 1,836, 10 fewer than the COVID-19 toll from that day before. Why is my mind full of these numbers? Because I study disasters, and disasters for a long time have, well, at least since we've entered the modern era, been recorded in death tallies and dollar counts. In late April, the United States went past the number of deaths from COVID-19 that had been experienced in the Vietnam War. That number was 58,220. The deaths in Vietnam, and I'm only talking about United States soldiers here to be clear, stretched out over a 10-year period. And here we're talking about 10 weeks with COVID-19, maybe a little bit longer since the first deaths when we reached that point of passing that threshold of the Vietnam death count. In the rush of stories focused on our president's medical advice or the stories about the urgency to reopen the economy, we have to grapple with the fact that we are experiencing what was a decade of trauma in a season. How is that changing us? Are we somehow becoming inured to it? COVID-19 has been a strange disaster. So many of the deaths, so much of the trauma has occurred out of sight to most people, indoors. Vietnam was the same in a sense, until the television cameras started closely following the war, and until the deaths started to touch every street in America, it remained abstract to many Americans. But that moment of awakening did come, and the impact was enormous, socially, politically, mentally, with effects that linger today. How are we processing this Vietnam level of deaths that's been sped up? How are we coping without our normal avenues of sociability? Now, as I record this, in May, we've almost doubled that Vietnam count. We're moving towards it very rapidly. How will we find the compassion and the sociability and the care that survivors like veterans need, that caregivers and workers need? I've been talking and will keep talking to experts on mental health in COVID calls. We are living a collective trauma. But the numbers in front of us aren't only deaths. With COVID-19, the performance of the Dow Jones Industrial Average has emerged as a key number day by day. And now the number of school days missed and businesses closed and unemployment numbers. If one takes even a cursory look behind the numbers, we find the errors in our counting, the arbitrary time frames drawn around the period of counting, the innumerable problems of comorbidities. What actually did kill a person, we might ask? Was it really COVID-19 or a complex of medical factors? We think about the new issues we seem to be facing with COVID-19, people being clinically diagnosed in some countries like South Korea and Singapore, allowing a more accurate picture of the disaster versus countries like the United States where the counting is proceeding in fits and starts unevenly across the nation. As I've come to say as a shorthand, the count is never the real count. This isn't a new problem. One of the darkest moments in Stanley Kubrick's Cold War masterpiece, Dr. Strangelove, is the impassioned speech that George C. Scott, as General Buck Turgidson makes, for a full-out atomic attack against the Soviet Union, predicting what he called acceptable losses for the United States, 10 to 20 million killed tops, he said. The optimism of it, the way he delivered the line, the dark humor and irrationality of it, has reminded me of the wild to-and-fro of predictions in the United States from what was somehow seen as an acceptable 60,000 deaths to a less acceptable 100,000 that we've now gone past, to a cataclysmic 2 million deaths, which was predicted at one point. 
What realities exist between those numbers? I've started to think we should move past such measures to begin thinking we should measure trauma instead, or maybe fear. The Cold War racked up huge totals in fear. Or to turn it inside out, we could perhaps even come up with a measurement of care. How much care is generated right now and expended around this disaster? How do we think about risk? What's acceptable? What isn't? How do we drag what we learn from one era of disasters into another? Let's talk about it. I am moved by the knowledge and insights of each of the COVID calls guests. These people give me hope that we will come through this together, and I hope you will especially take the chance to listen to my discussion with Kathleen Tierney. Kathleen is a career disaster social scientist and the former director of the Natural Hazards Center at the University of Colorado Boulder. And she's a genius and a humanitarian. Kathleen welcomed me and was extremely generous with her time years ago when I was writing my book, The Disaster Experts. She opened the Natural Hazard Center to me, gave me extensive interviews, and totally expanded my thinking about what a disaster actually is. Not a thing, not a measure, but a process, a revelation. And she did it again when we talked on COVID calls. I'm just going to give a quote here. She said, the solution to building resilience to disasters doesn't come out of the emergency management community or the policy community. It comes out of something bigger where we are enabling people to have the capacities and capabilities to be adaptable. And that includes the capability to engage in collective action to better their circumstances. I think she's right. This is the type of disaster that not only reveals historical inheritance, it serves as a lever to making something new. And I'm coming to agree with Kathleen that the ways people are relating, working together, sharing and sacrificing is inspiring and may indicate some sort of a new social contract in America. But we have to reckon with the disaster in front of us and the broken lives that are going to have to be repaired. I have been thinking these past weeks also about a very specific place, Deering's Nursing Home in Odessa, Texas. Deering's is the place my grandmother lived the final years of her life and where my grandfather spent his mornings and afternoons at her bedside while they talked, napped, watched television, looked at photographs, while he cleaned her room and tended to her needs. Where they lived their domestic life at the end of decades of marriage. Even though they've both been dead for a while now, I have thought about them so frequently and oddly worried about them at this time. Some sort of anxiety that carries forward even though they're gone. And I've also been thinking about those many people women and some men, who provided the care at my grandmother's bedside, day in and day out. The bonds of friendship grew with many of them, and yet they had their own families at home to tend to at the end of the shift. From the manager of Deering's to the staff of the kitchen and the maintenance man and the nurses and those who did the cleaning, Deering's was a community of care workers. And though I saw them and spoke with them, whenever I was there, only now do I feel like I have some deeper insight over the risks they faced every single day. Because Texas has done a poor job of reporting COVID-19 impacts on nursing homes, I haven't been able yet to know how the disease has impacted Deering's, but I know it must have. These issues of entanglements, family, work, care, life and death in intimate spaces run through the COVID calls. Finally, COVID Calls is a space for rising educators and researchers. It's a moment for these researchers to be heard and to talk about their own work and their own hopes at this time. 
I will feature emerging research and young researchers whenever possible on COVID calls. It's in them that we place enormous trust and faith. And with that, let's get to the discussions.